So would you turn uh, in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter uh, 11, and we'll read from verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and we'll read from verse 7. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 11 and verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain uh, from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the days, the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease, because they are few, and those who uh, look through the uh, windows are dimmed, uh, dimmed and the doors of the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terror uh, are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drives itself along. Uh, and desire feels because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity." Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. Amen, O God, will bless the reading of his word. This morning we are turning to our last study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And over the past few months, we have given this series of studies, the title, The Diary of a Desperate Man, because it's the uh, diary of Solomon who is writing out of the depth of his experience. You know that Solomon in later life wandered away from God and got involved in all kinds of dubious and immoral practices. And some commentators believe that the book of Ecclesiastes is his repentance, that it's equivalent to David's Psalm 51. You know uh, that David looked, lusted, lied, plotted, committed murder by proxy, 
and he failed then to acknowledge his sin before God until Nathan the prophet came and said, you are the man. And immediately after that, he wrote that wonderful psalm of contrition and repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And some have suggested that Ecclesiastes is Solomon's equivalent of Psalm 51, that out of his own bitter experience, he's telling us uh, that life without God, life lived under the sun, life lived for self, is utterly futile, meaningless, empty, a vanity of vanities. Now, in this final chapter, he reaches us uh, his conclusion, and he gives his readers this advice in verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And when Solomon uses that word remember, he doesn't simply mean that we are to think about God from time to time. Most people do that, even professing atheists like my brother would do that. He uh, at times will pray, even though he doesn't profess any faith and doesn't believe, in fact, in the existence of God. But when he was um, uh, uh, diving uh, on the barrier reef and the tube between his air tank and his mouthpiece ruptured, and he had to swim to the surface, uh, knowing that if he swam to the surface too quickly, he could get the bends and become disorientated. He said that whole time as he's swimming to the surface, he was praying. So God was in his thoughts, even though he didn't think that God was in his thoughts. Most people bring God into their thinking every now and then. They remember, but Solomon is saying more than that. He's not simply telling us every now and then, think about God in the same way that you might think about a relative on their birthday or a, a, a deceased uh, a relative on an anniversary. No, Solomon is telling us a lot more than that. When Solomon tells us to remember God, he's telling us to commit ourselves to God. The word is used in the Old Testament in the book of Samuel, and it illustrates uh, what Solomon is saying. You remember Hannah desperately wanted a child. She was unable to have children, and that was something of a stigma in those days, and she made it a matter of prayer. And she went up to God's house, and she prayed, prayed earnestly for God to help her. And we're told in 1 Samuel 1 and verse 19, the Lord remembered Hannah. The Lord remembered Hannah. Now, that doesn't mean that God had forgotten about Hannah, that he had misled Hannah, that he had misplaced Hannah, that when he saw Hannah in the temple, he said, oh, I, I forgot about you. Now I remember. It doesn't mean that. When the Bible tells us that the Lord remembered Hannah, it means that he declared himself for Hannah. He gave himself to Hannah. The uh, Lord committed his, himself to her name and to her cause and he remembered her and eventually she became pregnant gave birth to a son and she called him Samuel and that's what Solomon means here you and I are to remember God in that way not just every now and then when he pops up into our thinking but we are to be committed to him to his person to all he is and to all who he has revealed himself to be in his word 
As Jesus in the New Testament put it, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to remember. You are to be committed, heart, soul, and mind, to the God who made you. Now, Solomon doesn't just tell us to remember. He gives us a number of reasons why we should remember. And the first one is because of the effects of sin, because sin scars. Uh, Look at verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. Now, commentators are divided whether the evil days refers to what follows or what precedes. Remember our um, chapter divisions, although helpful, are artificial, and sometimes they appear in the, the wrong place. But Solomon has been talking about young people, and he says in verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Here, Solomon commands young people to rejoice, to enjoy life. And if we fail to enjoy, uh, we are disobeying Scripture. In Deuteronomy 28 and verse 47, Moses tells Israel that the curses of the covenant would befall those who don't serve the Lord joyfully. Paul calls us to rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case we miss it, he says, again, I will say rejoice. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that God provides everything for us to enjoy. God wants us, not only as the catechism says, to enjoy him forever, but to enjoy life. But there's a little warning attached there in verse 9. But know for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remember that. Yeah, God wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to live life to the full. But remember, there's a judgment to come. And then he says in verse 10, Remember vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. Now that word pain is exactly the same word as evil that appears in chapter 12 and verse 1. He he is saying, remember, remember that sin has consequences. Remember that sin leaves marks. Remember that sin scars. Enjoy life to be sure, but remember there are consequences and remember that sin will leave Mark. The great thing about the gospel is that in the gospel, when we repent, acknowledge our sin, and put our trust in Jesus Christ, all our sin is is forgiven and forgotten by God. Well, better than forgotten. The Bible tells us that God says, I will remember your sin no more. That's better than forgetting. Because I forget things all the time, but suddenly they'll pop back into my, my memory. In fact, God doesn't forget. He never forgets, but he chooses not to remember. And what God has said in the gospel, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and to remember our sins no more. He will choose not to remember them. I won't hold these things against you. Uh, If your sin is 
scarlet, it shall be white as snow. Even though it is red like crimson, it shall be as wool. However deeply ingrained sin is in your life, however glaringly obvious it is to your own conscience and to everyone else and to God in particular, in a moment it can be all forgiven. That's the gospel. But the point is this, that although sin is forgiven, often the scar remains, very often. Though the wound is healed, the scar remains. It won't remain forever, thank God, because when Christ presents his church to his Father in glory, it will be without spot or wrinkle or any uh, blemish. Even the scar tissue, when we get to heaven, will be healed. There won't be a vestige of it left whatsoever. But in this life, very often, although sin is forgiven and forgotten as far as God is concerned, we have to live with the consequences of it. And what Solomon is saying quite simply is this, remember your creator in the days of your life before you do something, you engage in something that you will regret for the rest of your life. That's what he's saying, before the evil days come, before sin does its disfiguring, scarring work on your life, Remember your creator now, says the authorized authorized version, before that happens. There's always forgiveness with God. There's always hope of forgiveness with God. There's always pardon with God. But before sin ruins your life and disfigures your life, remember your creator now, before you're left with deep, deep, bitter regrets. And remember Solomon has been there. We're talking to a man who has done things and experienced things and had resources to indulge himself in a way that we never will. He had all the opportunities and he's saying to us, it's not worth it. Remember your creator before the days of evil. That word evil could be translated as pain or trouble. Before the days of pain come. comes before sin leaves its stamp upon you, before it leaves its mark upon you, before it leaves its disfiguring ugliness upon you. Solomon is a tragic example of how sin ruined his life. He had a godly upbringing, godly father, but he walked out in it all. And now in his old age, he's looking back and he says, it ruined my life. Sin leaves its mark, it's cruel, he says. And if you were to ask anybody here this morning what's your greatest regret as a Christian, I would guarantee that most Christians who are worth their salt would say that I wasn't saved earlier in life. You know, we we glorify testimonies that, you know, people... Um, and we love to hear them falling into the depths of sin and depravity and, and God rescues them and picks them up and we say, oh, that's a wonderful testimony. But you know what the most wonderful testimony is? The most wonderful testimony is a child who's saved when they're young before the scarring work of sin does its work and leaves its mark because those people are protected greatly from it. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, was converted when he was six. 
Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, was converted when he was eight. Charles Spurgeon was converted when he was 15. Matthew Henry, the commentator, was converted when he was 11. So that's the first thing why we should remember our Creator in the days of your youth, because of the lasting effects of sin. The second is because of the nature of old age. Richard Needham, who was the longest serving minister in, uh, under direct rule in, uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, defined the seven stages of life as this. This is quite profound. Uh, spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. Let me repeat that. Spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. Old age has a habit of cropping up, uh, uh, creeping up on you. question that I'm often asked when I'm preaching in other places is, is this. Um, do you have many young people in your church? I, I don't like that question because it's the, the cult of youth as uh, spur of the world's creeping into the church. But I'm often asked that question. And when I'm asked that question, I have to remind myself they're not talking about me. Because none of us think that we're getting old. I remember being asked to uh, speak at a, uh, in England and they said, would you speak to the Youth Fellowship on, on a Saturday night? And that's okay. And I prepared something for the Sunday and I prepared something for the Youth Fellowship. And I went to the Youth Fellowship and they were all in their 60s. And, and they had grown up, they had got married, uh, they still attended their meeting, and they never changed their name. They didn't, they didn't like to think that they were getting old. No one likes to think that they're getting old. I've been at funerals, and people uh, in their 70s will stand there and say, well, that's the last of the old people now. You're the old people now. Old age creeps up. But when you're young, you think it goes on forever. And, and that's, that's why you have pop stars in their 70s, like Mick Jagger uh, strutting across the stage in leather trousers. And it just looks absolutely ridiculous. Because nobody likes to think that they're getting old. Someone has said they're walking backwards through life because they don't want to face what's coming. Well, Solomon doesn't want... Uh, won't let us do that. And he gives this wonderful description of old age. And I, I just hope I don't offend anybody this morning by what is about to come. Look at verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed um, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in their way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. He, he speaks in verse 2 of a, a gathering storm. You know, when, when you look back on, on your summer holidays as a child, the sun is always shining. You're always outside playing. But now you open the curtains in the morning, oh, it's going to rain today. Everything becomes negative. Um, it's the twilight of, of your years. In verse 3, uh, the picture is of a great house in decay. The keepers of the house, that's, that's the arms. They begin 
to tremble. They begin to have a shake. Strong men uh, are, are bent. A once uh, vigorous and healthy man begins to stoop. The grinders cease because they are few. You lose your teeth. Or the dentist takes them out and tries to put implants in to replace them. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Your eyesight progressively gets worse and your arms aren't long enough to see the book that you're holding in front of you. The doors on the street are shut, verse 4. Your, your hearing goes. You could hear everything in the street, but now you hear nothing. When the sound of the grinding is low, you can't hear those low sounds. You speak to your wife or your wife speaks to you in the car. And you say, what did you say? And she says, uh, she repeats it. You have to stop mumbling. And she says, well, it's not me mumbling. It's your your hearing. Uh, Verse 4, and one rises with the sound of a bird. As a teenager, I used to be able to sleep in on a Saturday morning to 12 o'clock. I used to come in and say, get out of your pit. And now, like clockwork, I, I rise at 6.30. just can't sleep further than that, longer than that. Not to the sound of the birds, but to the sound of the dogs barking. Bosses will understand that. And then verse 4, and all the daughters of song are brought low. You used to follow Radio 1. And then you reach a stage in life where you switch to Radio 2. And then in recent months, you realize Radio 2 is too trendy for you, and you switch to Radio 4. You're not listening to music anymore. Verse 5, they're afraid also of what is high and tears in the way. They're afraid of heights and obstacles. Here's a famous athlete who used to take everything in his stride, but now he's afraid to board a bus. He's afraid to take his car out in the snow. He's afraid to walk down to church in the morning without his spikes on his shoes in case he falls. The almond tree blossoms, verse 5. When we emigrated to Australia, my father bought an almond farm. And almond trees are like cherry trees, but white blossom instead of pink blossom. And you, you would look out and you would see this orchard of, of white. It was like the 50-plus meeting. All the gray hair. In fact, in fact, when he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, the Hebrew root for youth is black hair. Rather than white hair. The grasshopper drags itself along. He no longer lifts his feet. He kind of shuffles along. Desire fails. That might not, might be a reference to sexual potency, but it might be just a, a desire and a, a zest for life. Let's go for a coffee. We'll just make a coffee at home. We haven't been out for ages. Let's, let's go to the opera house and see something. Oh, I can't be bothered. Let's just watch the TV at home. This is the picture of old age. Verse 5. And mourners go about the streets. You, f- you find yourself always going to funerals. In your 20s, you're always going to weddings. But now you're always going to funerals. Your friends are, are taking from you. And what Solomon is saying, don't leave it to old age. You know the story about the, the, the granddaughter came in and said to her, her mom, you know, why is granny always reading the Bible these days? And the mother says she's studying for her finals. 
She's, she's trying to cram it in. But your physical powers uh, decrease and your mental ability decreases. So you can't come to churches often. You can't get out to churches often. You can't concentrate on preaching for five minutes. You can't read, focus, and concentrate. That's what Solomon's saying. Remember that, that you have all of your life to offer to Jesus and don't leave it too late. Don't give him the fag end of your life. Give him all of your life. One of the saddest experiences I've had was with my own sister. Last time I was in Australia and she was developing Alzheimer's and she, she was the only one in the family that took an interest in me when I became a Christian. She was the only one that came to my baptism. The only one in the, the whole family that came to my baptism. We were in this shopping center and she, I met her there and she forgot where she parked the car and she came out and she thought the car was stolen and there were, there were two car parks, one at either end of the shopping center, this huge shopping center and she had gone to the wrong car park. And she began to cry and for the first time she, she acknowledged that her, her mental powers were decreasing and and that was the last time I had any meaningful conversation with her about the gospel. The last time. I don't know if it made an impression. She, she was crying as she talked. But when she came over to visit us, when we first moved to, to Balamina, all powers of reason were gone. And she's, she's in a home, unable now to communicate with anyone. Well, that, that's what Solomon is saying. Remember your creator in the days of your youth because old age has a way of diverting your attention and, and turning your thoughts from God. The effects of sin, the nature of old age, the certainty of, of death. Solomon says death is certain. None of us like to face up to that ultimate uh, reality, but death is coming to us all unless the Lord returns. And he describes death in, in verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now he uses two illustrations, the the ESV translates it as four separate illustrations, but I, I, I think there, there are two. He describes it, life as a, an oil lamp fastened to the ceiling, hanging by a silver cord, and the chain, the cord breaks, and the lamp crashes to the ground, and the oil spills out, and the light is extinguished. How fragile your life is. It hangs by a thread, the whole weight of your eternity hangs on the thread of time. And when that end comes, when that silver cord is broken, you will be brought into the presence of the God who made you, the God who has the right to ask you what you've done with your life. The other picture here in verse 6 is the picture of a pitcher being lowered, a bucket being lowered down into a well by a rope running round a wheel. Death smashes the pitcher so that it can no longer contain the water and the, the, the wheel and the rope all fall into the well. 
It's a graphic picture of what happens when the physical constitution is broken up and the human body is no longer able to sustain life. And then in verse 7, he tells us what death is and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Death is not annihilation. It's not ceasing to be. It's not when you're dead, you're dead, and that's the end. Death, says Solomon, is a separation of the body and the spirit. And the body goes back to dust, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but the spirit returns to the God who gave it. We go into eternity, and we will find ourselves when we die in the presence of the God who made us. Are you ready for that? The statistics on death, as I said before, are frightening. One out of one dies. Nothing will cancel that appointment with death. It is appointed on to man once to die. What Solomon is saying is this. Are you ready for it? Are you ready to die? When are you going to remember your creator, Cardinal Woolsey? Uh, who was um, a contemporary of Henry VIII on his deathbed said, Would that I serve God as faithfully as I have served my king. He would not have forsaken me in my old age. That's how a life dedicated to this world must end. He was a churchman, but he was a politician, and he lived for his king and not for God. William Pitt, the prime minister, uh, former prime minister said, I have neglected prayer on his deathbed. It's unavailable to me. Rabbi, Rabbi Burns shrieked out at the end, save me from the horrors of this jail. He lived for this world, and when the end came, he wasn't ready for the next. Sin scars the effects of sin because of the nature of old age, because of the certainty of death, and because of the prospect of, of judgment. Look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of God. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's a judgment to come. We are going to stand before God and give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. And the books are going to be open. And we're going to have to give an account of our lives. And he, he is saying, that's what you must focus on. That's what you must, must do. That's what you must remember, that you're going to stand before God in judgment. And he says, all of life is summed up, verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. The word duty doesn't appear in the, the Hebrew. It's this is the whole of man. This is what life is about. This is what God has designed you for, to fear God and to keep his commandments. And fearing God in the Old Testament is equivalent to faith in the New Testament. You've got to believe in God and live for God and, and serve God. This is the most important thing, he says. And this is why you need to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Look at what he says there. Um, he, he talks about his, his writing of Proverbs and so on. But look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, 
And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. He says, I write these words. I hope I've written them well, he says. But my words have been given by the one shepherd, by the great shepherd, by the heavenly shepherd. And these words are like goads. Like they're like nails to direct you to God, to think about God, to trust in God, to, to believe in God. And as we have gone through Ecclesiastes, have you been thinking about God? Have you been thinking about your life? What is your life? Have you been thinking about eternity? Have you been thinking of that, that, that thin thread that holds your life, that can be broken uh, at any moment? And sometimes it's the suddenness of that break that takes us all by surprise, that it's not just old people who die, but young people die too. That's why you need to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. I mentioned earlier that Jonathan Edwards was converted when he was eight, the great American theologian. He studied Latin at six. He graduated from Yale at 15. He was ordained as a minister of the gospel at 19. He taught at Yale when he was 20. He became uh, president, the first president of Princeton University. On July the 8th, uh, 1741, he preached... Uh, a very famous sermon which led actually to the first great awa uh, awakening in America where people were spiritually concerned. He preached this sermon, Sinners in the, hang in the Hands of an Angry God. And he said, your life is, is like um, a spider over a fire and it's, it's hanging by a, a, a single thread of web. And uh, the fire he, he talked about is being the eternal wrath of God. And at, at any moment, that uh, single thread can be singed and broken and you drop into the, the wrath of God, eternity without God. And the people in the church were, were holding on to their pews and they were crying out and word, the sermon was published and, and people were falling prostrate to the ground asking God for mercy because of the precarious danger they were in. That your life hangs by a thread. And at any moment that thread can be broken and you can be taken into eternity to face the God who made you. Are you ready for that? Do you fear God? You say, well, you know, what will my friends say? How will my friends react? How will my friends respond? The trouble is you fear your friends rather than fearing God. This is eternity you're we're talking about. This, these are eternal issues. Your life is hanging by a thread. That's why you need to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. That's why you need to come to Jesus. That's why you need to trust in Jesus. That's why you need to believe in Jesus. Jesus offers free and full forgiveness. He will take away your sin and he will prepare you for judgment. I love that story, sermon illustration that Alistair Begg gave uh, recently in one of his podcasts. He talks about the dying thief. You know, we have one deathbed conversion in Scripture, the dying thief. And uh, J.C. Ryle says, we have one recorded for us that we might not despair, but only one that we may not pres presume. And here this, this dying man whose life was corrupted 
um, and enmeshed in sin and rebellion against God. He, he dies, and he's brought before God in judgment. And God says to him, why are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. Well, if you were to die right now, could you stand before your eternal judge and say, the man on the middle cross has told me I can come. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Amen.